This is John DeFalb from John Sandoz with your third sequence of readings from P.G. Woodhouse. I have once again chosen the Blandings novel. This one is something fresh. I begin very near, but not at, the beginning. We have already been introduced to our hero, Mr. Ash Marson, and we so far know about him only that he secured a blue for athletics at Oxford and shortly thereafter fell into writing for a weekly journal, a series called The Adventures of Gridley Quayle, Investigator, which have proved unexpectedly popular with the reading public. Now we meet him as he steps out of his rented flat in Arundel Street, off Leicester Square, on a May morning. He was a tall, well-built, fit-looking young man, with a clear eye and a strong chin and he was dressed as he closed the front door behind him in a sweater, flannel trousers and rubber-soled gymnasium shoes. In one hand he bore a pair of Indian clubs, in the other a skipping rope. Having drawn in and expelled the morning air in a measured and solemn fashion which the initiated observer would have recognised as that scientific deep breathing which is so popular nowadays, he laid down his clubs, adjusted his rope, and began to skip. When one considers how keenly London, like all large cities, resents physical exercise, unless taken with some practical and immediately utilitarian object in view, this young man's calm, as he did this peculiar thing, was amazing. The rules governing exercise in London are clearly defined. You may run if you are running after a hat or an omnibus. You may jump if you do so with the idea of avoiding a taxicab or because you have stepped on a banana skin. But if you run because you wish to develop your lungs or jump because jumping is good for the liver, London punishes you with its mockery. It rallies round and points the finger of scorn. Yet this morning Arundel Street bore the spectacle absolutely unmoved. Due west, the proprietor of the Hotel Previtali leant against his hostelry, his mind an obvious blank. Due north, the proprietor of the Hotel Mathis propped up his caravanserai, manifestly thinking of nothing. In various windows of the two hotels, the upper portions of employees appeared and not a single employee ceased his task for a moment to fling a jibe. Even the little children who infested the court forbore to scoff, and the customary cat rubbing itself against the railings rubbed on without a glance. The whole thing affords a remarkable object lesson of what a young man can achieve with patience and perseverance. When he had taken the second-floor front of number 7A three months before, Ash Marson had realised that he must forego those morning exercises which had become a second nature to him, or else defy London's unwritten law and brave London's mockery. He had not hesitated long. Physical fitness was his gospel. On the subject of exercise, he was confessedly a crank, he decided to defy London. The first time he appeared in Arundel Street in his sweater and flannels, 
He had barely whirled his Indian clubs once round his head before he had attracted the following audience. A. Two cabmen, one intoxicated. B. Four waiters from the Hotel Mathis. C. Six waiters from the Hotel Previtali. D. Six chambermaids from the Hotel Mathis. E. Five chambermaids from the Hotel Previtali. F. The proprietor of the Hotel Mathis. G. The proprietor of the Hotel Previtali. H. A street cleaner. I. Eleven nondescript loafers. J. Twenty-seven children. K. A cat. They all laughed, even the cat, and kept on laughing. The intoxicated cabman called Ash Bill Bailey, and Ash kept on swinging his clubs. A month later, such is the magic of perseverance, his audience had narrowed down to the twenty-seven children. They still laughed, but without that ringing conviction which the sympathetic support of their elders had lent them. And now, after three months, the neighbourhood, having accepted Ash and his morning exercises as a natural phenomenon, paid him no further attention. On this particular morning, Ash Marson skipped with even more than his usual vigour. This was because he wished to expel, by means of physical fatigue, a small devil of discontent of whose presence within him he had been aware ever since getting out of bed. It is in the spring that the ache for the larger life comes upon us, and this was a particularly mellow spring morning. It was the sort of morning when the air gives us a feeling of anticipation, a feeling that on a day like this things surely cannot go joggling along in the same dull old groove, a premonition that something romantic and exciting is about to happen to us. On such a morning you will see stout old gentlemen make sudden rollicking swings with their umbrellas, and a note of shrill optimism thrills in the errand boy's whistle as he sees life opening before him, large and splendid. But the southwest wind of spring brings also remorse. We catch the vague spirit of unrest in the air, and we regret our misspent youth. Ash was doing this. Even as he skipped, he was conscious of a wish that he had worked harder at Oxford, and was now in a position to be doing something better than hackwork for a soulless publishing company. Never before had he been so completely certain that he was sick to death of the rut into which he had fallen. The thought that after breakfast he must sit down and hammer out another gridly quail adventure numbed him like a blow from what the papers always call some blunt instrument. The mere thought of gridly quail was loathsome on a morning like this, with all creation shouting at him that summer was on its way and that there were brave doings afoot just round the corner. Skipping brought no balm. He threw down his rope and took up the Indian clubs. Indian clubs left him still unsatisfied. The thought came to him that it was a long time since he had done his Larsen exercises. Perhaps they would heal him. A gentleman named Lieutenant Larsen of the Danish army, as a result of much study of the human anatomy, some time ago evolved a series 
of exercises. All over the world at the present moment, his apostles are twisting themselves into knots in accordance with the dotted lines and the illustrative plates of his admirable book. From Peebles to Baffin's Bay, arms and legs are being swung in daily thousands from point A to point B, and flaccid muscles are gaining the consistency of India rubber. Larson's exercises are the last word in exercises. They bring into play every sinew of the body. They promote brisk circulation. They enable you, if you persevere, to fell oxen, if desired, with a single blow. But they are not dignified. Indeed, to one seeing them suddenly and without warning for the first time, they are markedly humorous. The only reason why King Henry of England, whose son sank with the white ship, never smiled again, was because Lieutenant Larson had not then invented his admirable exercises. So complacent, so insolently unself-conscious had Ash become in the course of three months, owing to his success in inducing the populace to look on anything he did with the indulgent eye of understanding, that it simply did not occur to him, when he abruptly twisted his body into the shape of a corkscrew in accordance with the directions in the lieutenant's book for the consummation of exercise one, that he was doing anything funny. And the behaviour of those present seemed to justify his confidence. The proprietor of the Atel Mathis regarded him without a smile. The proprietor of the Atel Previtali might have been in a trance for all the interest he displayed. The Atel employees continued their tasks impassively. The children were blind and dumb. The cat across the way stropped its backbone against the railings unheeding. But even as he unscrambled himself and resumed a normal posture, from his immediate rear there rent the quiet morning air a clear and musical laugh. It floated out upon the breeze and hit him like a bullet. Three months ago Ash would have accepted the laugh as inevitable and would have refused to allow it to embarrass him. But long immunity from ridicule had sapped his resolution. He spun round with a jump, flushed and self-conscious. From the window of the first floor front of number 7A, a girl was leaning. The spring sunshine played on her golden hair and lit up her bright blue eyes fixed on his flannelled and sweated person with a fascinated amusement. Even as he turned, the laugh smote him afresh. For the space of perhaps two seconds, they stared at each other eye to eye. Then she vanished into the room. Ash was beaten. Three months ago, a million girls could have laughed at his morning exercises without turning him from his purpose. Today, this one scoffer, alone and unaided, was sufficient for his undoing. The depression which exercise had begun to dispel surged back upon him. He had no heart to continue. Sadly gathering up his belongings, he returned to his room and found a cold bath, tame and uninspiring. The breakfasts included in rent 
provided by Mrs. Bell, the landlady of number 7A, were not exhilarating feasts. By the time Ash had done his best with the dishevelled fried egg, the chicory blasphemously called coffee, and the charred bacon, misery had him firmly in its grip. And when he forced himself to the table and began to try to concoct the latest of the adventures of Gridley Quail Investigator, his spirit groaned within him. With that musical laugh ringing in his ears, he found himself wishing that he had never thought of Gridley Quail, that the baser elements of the British reading public had never taken him for their hero, and that he personally was dead. The unholy alliance had been in progress now for more than two years, and it seemed to Ash that Gridley grew less human each month. He was so complacent and so maddeningly blind to the fact that only the most amazing luck enabled him to detect anything. To depend on Gridley Quail for one's income was like being chained to some horrible monster. This morning, as he sat and chewed his pen, his loathing for Gridley seemed to have reached its climax. It was his habit in writing these stories to think of a good title first, and then fit an adventure to it. And overnight, in a moment of inspiration, he had jotted down on an envelope the words, The Adventure of the Wand of Death. It was with the sullen repulsion of a vegetarian who finds a caterpillar in his salad that he now sat glaring at them. The title had seemed so promising overnight, so full of strenuous possibilities. It was still speciously attractive, but now that the moment had arrived for writing the story, its flaws became manifest. What was a wand of death? It sounded good, but coming down to hard facts, what was it? You cannot write a story about a wand of death without knowing what a wand of death is. And conversely, if you have thought of such a splendid title, you cannot jettison it offhand. Ash rumpled his hair and gnawed his pen. There came a knock at the door. Ash spun round in his chair. This was the last straw. If he had told Mrs. Bell once that he was never to be disturbed in the morning on any pretext whatsoever, he had told her twenty times. It was simply too infernal to be endured if his work time was to be cut into like this. He ran over in his mind a few opening remarks. Come in, he shouted, and braced himself for battle. A girl walked in. The girl of the first floor front, the girl with the blue eyes who had laughed at his Larson exercises. Mm -hmm.